Talk of big data sets seems to be a hot topic at the moment in finance, IT, marketing, and big data and its many applications are also starting to appear in the world of robotic assisted surgery. This is thanks to different systems' abilities to capture tremendous amounts of information from every single operation. But what does this all mean? And how can we make sense of all this new data? What we need to do is define what the important data is. There's a saying that, you know, rubbish in, rubbish out. So we need to have relevant data. We need to be able to collect that data in a reliable way and annotate it. And then we need to also be able to analyze it and show that it correlates with important outcomes. And then once we have made sense of it, how could it be used to help qualified surgeons and surgeons in training? What you want is objective performance feedback that is personalized, and kinematic data can be very useful at that at a certain level. It won't tell you that you've done the right operation on the right patient, but it can tell you about deficiencies of movement and whether or not you're doing things with both hands and that you're doing it in a coordinated fashion. This is Surgical Robo Talks, brought to you by CMR Surgical and the Association of Surgeons in Training your source for all the latest in robotic-assisted surgery and education. In this series, we speak with surgeons and leading figures in medicine to help clinicians make the sense of the developments, challenges and opportunities in robotic-assisted surgery. I'm your host, Jessica Butterworth, and my co-host today is Fahad Ullah. Hi, I'm Fahad. I'm SD5 colorectal trainee and also working as ACID robotic lead. In this episode, we'll be finding out how surgical robotics is allowing for vast quantities of data to be collected and discussing if this can result in better education for new and qualified surgeons alike. And joining us on our big data exploration today is Associate Medical Director at CMR Surgical and Consultant Urologist at University College London Hospitals, Justin Collins. We'll find out how we can discern the important parts from large data sets how this data could improve the learning curve for trainees and how big data could transform robotic-assisted surgery in years to come. Plus, Justin explains how big data could help standardise procedures and raise the bar for robotic-assisted surgery. Now, big data as a term is pretty broad. And depending on which industry you're talking about, the information that comprises this big data can vary. So, for robotic-assisted surgery, what kind of data is being collected and how is it being used? We have obviously a lot of data in in surgery and surgical devices such as robotics systems give us opportunities to collect new types of data. We have with the robot uh, what we call kinematic data or telemetry and this is uh, data on the movement of the instruments. And there's been some interesting work done by different researchers to show that that correlates with differences in novices and experts' performance. And what we see with expert performance is they do little small movements uh, controlled and they're more bidextrous, whereas novice surgeons do more random movements and, and they tend to be more right or left hand dominant, depending on which is their main hand. We also have uh, with all endoscopic surgery video data, and there's uh, exciting opportunities with things like computer vision uh, to look at the uh, relevance and and to learn from uh, computer vision from uh, video performance analysis. So there might have been some new terminology discussed there for our listeners, such as telemetry. So just to quickly explain, telemetry refers to all the information that the robot records, and this is captured through its software. 
So this could be how many times an arm is port trained, to what instruments are used, or as you've discussed, data on the movements of the instruments. So Justin, I'm interested in how surgeons actually get access to this data. So if we use your example of instrument use, what data will a surgeon see? With the Versio system or with any sort of VR simulation, that will be the, the time you'll probably see the sort of the, the, the breakdown and the representation of the kinematic data. So if you're doing basic skills training with uh, VR simulation, you will see uh, efficiency of movements and, and, and you'll see uh, different sort of metrics of performance that come from that. The kinematic data in itself is uh, currently used mainly by the engineers to see how the instruments are performing, see how the system is performing. but so we don't routinely get a printout of kinematic data at the end of a procedure, although there is ongoing research work that is looking at the correlation between the kinematic data and outcome data. So uh, kinematic data aligned with computer vision is probably a very exciting forefront of digital surgery. You have used the term uh, computer vision. Can you please explain more for our audience what exactly is this term computer vision? Computer vision is training AI to identify certain things. So if we have computer vision, we might be able to identify instruments such as a needle holder or a grasper, might be able to understand and see a needle. And uh, you can start to identify maybe uh, large anatomical structures. If you look on something like YouTube for computer vision, you will see that it works in some settings, but a computer takes a long time to learn certain things. Whereas a child will recognize the face of a puppy. If you gave a computer vision program a cookie with uh, two raisins in the position of the eyes and one in the position of the nose, it might struggle to tell the difference between a cookie with three raisins and a puppy. So there are absolutely limitations to this, uh, but the combination of looking at some computer vision for orientation during the surgery and aligning that with kinematic data is uh, an exciting forefront of digital surgery. Well, it sounds like one of the benefits of robotics is that there are all these touch points where you can collect lots of data. So is there anything as too much data? Because I can imagine everything needs to be analysed. I guess everything needs to be used. And sort of how can we sort out what's the important bits of data that's useful for the trainees, the surgeons, and then even the patients? So you're absolutely right, Jess, that there's a lot of variables here. We have patient factors, we have provider factors, there's uh, technology and tool factors, there's team factors, there's environmental factors which vary, and there's also organizational factors. So what we need to do is define what the important data is. And there's a saying that, you know, rubbish in, rubbish out. So we need to have relevant data. Uh, we need to be able to collect that data in a reliable way and annotate it. And then we need to also be able to analyze it and, and show that it correlates with important outcomes. And there's, there's various biases that are identified. If you look at uh, biases, there's confirmation bias. There's also something called interpretation bias. And there are two other identified types of biases that computers and machine learning are actually more susceptible to. Uh, one of those is uh, prediction bias. So an example of that is if you identify as a police force that there's an area of higher crime and put police force there, they're more likely to catch criminals just by the fact that they're there. So that's prediction bias and computers or algorithms looking at certain types of data and, and looking for correlations are more likely to find them. And then there's something called information bias. Uh, so Google 
famously tried to predict flu epidemics uh, by looking at people searching for flu remedies. But what they didn't take into account was that different states had uh, different levels maybe of hypochondriasis. So people were more worried about, they were the healthy people worried about themselves, so they were getting in medicines uh, prophylactically to protect themselves in the future. So actually those types of bias are better or, or less likely to happen with humans and are more likely to happen with computers. So I guess that's a really good point. Information bias and Google, which we're all familiar with, and I'm sure most people at one point or another have Googled some kind of symptom or something like that. So what kind of data do you think will be useful to patients from robotics that they can access now or maybe in the future? Where do you see that going? So I think we're a long way from there because the data that we can collect from the robot, from patient outcomes, we need to make sure that we're not creating biases in that if we go to a tertiary referral center that is more high volume, are they doing a lot more difficult cases? So there's there's patient selection biases that come into that. There's also the way that people report outcomes. So we have studies that are published in the literature that say 0% complications. And you know if that's a large series, there's probably interpretation bias in there that they've classified something as no complications when we we know that even if surgery is done perfectly, uh, if a patient has comorbidities or it's a complex surgery, you will get some complications. So I think we need to be careful about just putting lots of data out there for patients to interpret. I think this will go in a stepwise way where we will need to be able to guarantee that this data is reliable, that it relates to important outcomes relevant to the patients, and that it's maybe independently verified. From a trainee's perspective or from a trainee's point of view, what do you think uh, this data or specifically kinematic data can help in uh, decreasing the learning curve? So I think if we look at the principles of sustained deliberate practice, that was by Anders Ericsson, who said that to learn something, you need to define what the learning objectives are, then get personalized immediate feedback, and then continue to practice repeatedly to get to that learning objective. So in that setting, I think kinematic data could be very helpful, because if you define objective metrics of, I want you to be able to tie a knot without uh, snapping the suture or dropping the needle, and then if they do drop the needle, you say, well, the reason you failed this task is because you've dropped the needle that was picked up in the kinematic data. What you want is objective performance feedback that is personalized, and kinematic data can be very useful at that, at a certain level. It won't tell you that you've done the right operation on the right patient, but it can tell you about deficiencies of movement and whether or not you're doing things with both hands and that you're doing it in a coordinated fashion. So, as long as you make sure to recognise and highlight the important data points available, there's potentially a lot of information being generated by surgical robotics. This could help to improve the standard of robotic-assisted surgical practice and training. But with so much information at our fingertips, how should surgeons and educators process these enormous databases to make sure we draw the right conclusions when it comes to implementing best practice guidelines? There's various definitions of big data. Oracle has a definition of big data that contains a greater variety of data, so data from more sources, increasing volumes, and also, as you collect it, increasing velocity. And that's quite nice because it's sort of the three Vs of greater variety, increasing volumes, and more velocity. But uh, big data 
can also lead to spurious correlations. So we need to understand the benefits of big data. The current successes of data in healthcare are really with something that's called narrow AI, where you define, like you would do a good study, what the hypotheses are, what the variables are to collect, and what the outcome is, and look for correlations. Big data outside of healthcare is sometimes coming up with new insights and new ideas, but that's not necessarily always relevant or correct in something like healthcare. So we need to be cautious of just taking big data and putting it into sort of a, a deep mind or a Google AI that comes out with some conclusions. And if we look at the science of big data and, and the surgical data science, the successes in surgery have mostly been within narrow AI with limited variables and defined outcomes that correlate with uh, known physiological and pathological processes. So I think that's where the short and medium term advances will come from data rather than taking a lot of big data and throwing it at, at a supercomputer. So at the moment, I am a trainee and I will become ultimately a consultant in coming years. And uh, once uh, I'm established consultant and I know how to uh, do robotic, how to perform robotic surgery. How will data help me as a consultant in improving patient management and uh, efficacy and efficiency? If you have uh, defined learning objectives or defined goals and you work towards them, according to the research by Anders Ericsson and Sustained deliberate practice, your learning curve can be shortened by up to 10 times. If you look at the difference between a club golfer and a professional golfer, if you have a difficult shot as a club golfer and you need to bend the ball around the tree, the likelihood is you'll play that shot and it'll either land in the green or it won't. And most of the times it won't. If you were a professional golfer, you would practice that shot. You'd say, okay, I'm going to hit as many balls as it takes for me to get three of them in a row land where I want it to go. And that's what we need to really sort of strive for. The other big issue with all sort of uh, data is, you know, 50% of surgeons are below average, and that is just simple maths. But because we have a lot of variables outside of our own skills, we need to be aware that we need to get people to contribute data and to help people progress along their learning curve. There was a statement by somebody called Ernst Codman, and Ernst Codman, in 1914, he said, we believe it is the duty of every hospital to establish a follow-up system so that as far as possible, the result of every case will be available at all times for the investigation by members of the staff, the trustees or administration, or by other authorized investigators, researchers, or statisticians. So... He said that in 1914, but actually when he said that in 1914, he lost his privileges and was stopped operating at Massachusetts General Hospital at the time. So historically, there's been a fear that data can be used to criticize surgeons, but actually data is there to help identify when things go wrong sooner and earlier to be supportive. And if people are outliers, that's not necessarily because they're a bad surgeon. It just means they need more help at that point. So we can use data to be supportive data and to help surgeons to get better quicker. So I didn't realise that someone actually suggested collecting follow-up data in hospitals as early as 1914. Ernst was a pioneer. It's a shame he got penalised for it. So I'm hoping this mindset has shifted. So what's the current state of registries and where do you see this going in the future? So I think the, a good registry needs to have data at three time points. So it needs to have uh, pre-op data on the patient. We need 
interoperative data collection. Uh, and we also certainly need post-operative collection. So, you know, how many times was the patient readmitted? Were there any complications? Did they need to be reoperated on or treated with antibiotics and other things like that? So we, we need to get data from those sort of three time points. Data needs to be relevant to the surgeon. It's maybe not very helpful for an individual surgeon to get data from their region or their hospital if they're one of eight surgeons. So we need to have personalized performance data. And one of the things we've tried to do with the CMR registry is collect all the relevant data. So you can't collect everything, but rather uh, you need to have a limitation on the boundaries of that data. And then we've used things like COSIMS plots, which are sort of funnel plots. And in that way, we can see who is going outside of the sort of funnel plots earlier and potentially go back to that uh, organization, that individual and say, you're either performing above expectation or you're performing below expectation. And we have data that indicates that uh, Maybe it's something as simple as just going back on and doing more basic skills training on the on the VR simulation. And uh, if we break down interoperative performance, we can probably look at things like orientation metrics. So is it the, the right patient? Are they uh, operating at the right time? And is it the right uh, level of experience for that surgeon? But these are simple things that we can do to orientate. So the right patient at the right time for the right surgeon. And then we can give them the feedback uh, on how they can improve their learning curve because we have that outcome data linked to that. Okay, so we've discussed the difficulties of these big data sets. And it's imperative to analyse what's important and what's relevant. But I want to change our focus now and ask you about AI, as I guess this is what this has all been leading towards. I've heard the term AI or artificial intelligence used a lot, particularly at conferences and in blogs. And it always seems to be a hot topic. And I guess with endless possibilities. So do you think sometimes there's a risk of over enthusiasm for the future of AI? And where do you see this going? So I think there's increasing excitement with AI, but also uh, increasing uh, awareness of its limitations. In healthcare, AI has been most successful in what we call predictive analysis. Uh, so if you have data and you want to interpret that data, if you look at things like somebody who's getting septic on an ITU, there's a lot of variables that can contribute to that. And there's some work that's been done that showed uh, artificial intelligence is a good tool for early sepsis detection. But if you take a patient who's septic and then say, okay, we've diagnosed early that you've got septicemia and we want to give you antibiotics. And if the mortality for that group is say 10%, and we could lower that even with AI to 5%, but we don't know why those 5% die or why the AI chose that specific antibiotic because it's not transparent, then that's unacceptable. So we can't just have supercomputers coming up with uh, treatment options if uh, it's done through a process called deep learning where we don't have access to the, the thinking of that. And I think that's the way it'll continue to go in healthcare because it's not transparent and, and sometimes we don't know how these supercomputers reach certain decisions or conclusions. Utilizing big data, AI and deep learning isn't as simple as taking a computer's word for the best course of action and blindly running with it. Because, as with any new drug, treatment or technology, there needs to be rigorous and transparent testing before any new guidelines can be implemented. And these complex computing technologies aren't the only ones helping our robotic surgeons of tomorrow. 
Simpler tools like video conferencing platforms have enabled telementoring, making access to mentorship and case support more equitable than ever before. But could there be any drawbacks of tutoring at a distance? So I think the thing that's most important with any telepresence service or telementoring is that there is awareness of the opportunities to aid learning, but also the limitations. If you have the expert surgeon remotely, you need to make sure that you're not in a situation where somebody needs to take over and the person in the room is not skilled to do that. The way to get around that is uh, with a clear agreement of what the expectations are from that service. You also need agreement on how you're going to perform the procedure. So uh, a poor use of telementoring might be if uh, if, if uh, you rang me up and said, I'm struggling with this case, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm completely lost, uh, tell me what I need to do. And the expert surgeon remotely says, okay, I can help you with this, this is what you need to do. And uh, the local person who's less experienced say, no, 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 that's not how I do the procedure, you watch me and tell me what I'm doing wrong. Because actually then you have two people on a discovery curve, an inexperienced surgeon who's already declared that they're lost and somebody who's remote uh, who doesn't know what they're going to do. So we need agreement on what the different phases of the procedure are, what you need to identify during that procedure, what the tasks are, and, and also very importantly, what the errors are. So it sounds like planning and alignment between the operating surgeon and the remote surgeon is key here to help advance along that discovery curve quickly. So what would your top tips be to help with this process and communication? So I think um, you don't meet each other first time when there's an anesthetized patient lying on the table. Uh, you would want to have uh, preliminary meetings. You'd want to discuss the patient. We talked about data from preoperative, intraoperatively and postoperatively. So as a, an experienced trainer, you would want to have discussion about patient selection, make sure that they're not choosing a patient that they're going to struggle with. So if I choose a patient with a high BMI, uh, with a, a narrow pelvis and a very large prostate, all those things are going to contribute to poor access to space to do a prostatectomy. And if I'm competent at doing patients with low BMIs, average size prostates and, and normal anatomy, and I want to up my skill set, then maybe I take on one of those variables uh, at a more difficult level and not all three at once. So sometimes less experienced people don't recognize that. And that's another good reason why you should discuss the cases preoperatively with the experienced trainer. And then you need to, to look at the videos to understand their technique, to understand what they recognize are errors and, and to follow that recipe that approach to optimized surgery so that you're both in agreement in what it is that you're trying to achieve. And do you think that telementoring is suitable for anyone in their learning curve? So we've discussed that Fahad is going to be a consultant surgeon soon, but is this something he could or should use as a registrar? And I guess we also have different consultants coming from different backgrounds. So a laparoscopic surgeon moving to robotics or even an open surgeon sort of moving to robotics. So do you think telementoring is suitable in all of these scenarios? I think telementoring can be a, a fantastic aid to learning and guidance. We did some studies at Karolinska where we looked at elective telementoring, uh, but we also looked at, um, we termed the, the phrase emergency telementoring. It wasn't really an emergency situation, but it was sort of unplanned in that if you're at a certain point in your learning curve and you want somebody there to look over your shoulder uh, and you've discussed the case, then hopefully that goes uh, without any 
hiccups, but actually you could still benefit from the remote experience mentor. It might move you further along the learning curve. They'll give you tips and tricks to to uh, tweak the way that you're doing the operation and maybe uh, progress more quickly. But the other element of tele-mentoring where you're saying, you know, I've not seen this before, what should I do in this scenario? Then that might be something that uh, somebody experienced can make a real impact. And and what we found in Karolinska when we looked at this was it was the unplanned tele-mentoring that actually had the biggest impact in preventing over the course of a year, two or three which would have been otherwise conversions to open surgery uh, because the safer thing at that point was to convert to open, but actually having the guidance and expertise given remotely, it was completely safe for them to progress uh, robotically. We hear a lot about the terms performance metrics and performance and standardization, more specifically in the airline industry. How do you think uh, the data derived from the robotics can help in achieving or meeting these performance metrics and standardization for trainees? We've got, as we said, good access to data from the the robot. It's it's computer-assisted surgery. We have good video that can be analyzed with self-reflections. The other issue with digital surgery or, or data collection in a modern OR is something called interoperability. So interoperability is the failure of devices to to talk to each other. So we have good data maybe from the anesthetist and the anesthetic machine. We have data from the robots. We might have uh, data on in, in other areas of data collection devices within the OR, but can we align that data and make it relevant uh, to the other data points? So the solution to that is something called data normalization, where you need to collect the data and without losing the information there and, and not changing its scale, then you need to make it relatable and actually objective performance metrics might be a good scale to have reference material t- towards. So if we took kinematic data and, and looked at it in uh, objective performance metrics to see if the surgeon, the trainee, uh, saw what they needed to see before they did what they planned to do and avoided the errors that were agreed were errors, then then we can start to make sense of all this data that we're collecting and align it with outcome metrics from performance, but also then see if you have better performance as we think that will correlate, show that that actually relates to better patient outcomes. So less complications, less reoperations, and so on and so forth. So how do we know when people can progress onto the next stage of their training? So we talked about the sort of performance metrics, and we, we need to know if somebody has actually hit a benchmark to make sure that they can go on to the next stage. So with CMR, we have uh, training for device training, which is the sort of instructions for use so that they know how to use the technology. And then we have basic skills training or the fundamentals of robotic surgery uh, to look at uh, sort of basic skills. So we can do all those to what we call a benchmark. And the way to set a benchmark is to take a group of experts to get them to do clearly defined tasks and also with defined errors. And then you would come to the conclusion that uh, this group of experts performs at a certain level. So take the average performance of a, of a group of experts. Did they complete all the tasks? Did they avoid all the errors? And that's your benchmark. And then we can train people to that benchmark and give them personalized performance feedback to say the reason why you failed the benchmark is because you had these two errors or you didn't complete these tasks in the way that we agreed you should do. And you can take that whole process from 
device training to basic skills training up into procedural training if you break down a procedure into the phases, the things to identify and see, the tasks to complete, and the errors to avoid. We're defining errors as sort of pre-errors and errors. So if uh, an event error is losing the needle, you can't actually lose the needle unless you drop it. So a technique error or a pre-error is dropping the needle. It's not something that's going to cause problems for the patient, but if you don't drop the needle, you can't lose it. So we, we can define the pre-errors and that gives people better learning objectives to prevent errors occurring. We've heard how data can help to improve an individual's performance through the use of metrics. But in the long run, could these big data sets actually help to develop a standardized approach to surgical training for everyone and raise the bar for all robotic surgeons? Yeah, absolutely. So that sort of happens on a much slower scale at the moment. So we do have masters, mastery of surgical procedures, and we can learn from those experts because they take that information forward. There was an interesting publication that came out of the Martini Clinic in Germany, and they had a very standardized approach to surgery. They thought all the surgeons did exactly the same procedure, but when they looked at their outcome data, they identified that one surgeon had much better early continence. And they thought, well, why is that? Because we're all doing the same thing. So they went back and looked at the videos and what they saw was this one surgeon was preserving more of the urethra by sort of dissecting it out at the apex of the prostate. And at that time, it was believed that early continence was more related to the neurovascular bundle. So they thought, well, maybe this has an effect, but we're not sure. So they then changed the surgical technique to replicate what that one of the eight surgeons are doing. And they saw this big step improvement in early continence from all eight surgeons. And then they realized that this was important. The, the urology profession now realizes this important. It was published in a very high impact journal, European Urology, and it's something we all take into account. But maybe an important learning point from that is that took probably six to seven years from the surgeon working it out, to them analyzing the video, to them changing their own technique, to them to collecting the data, to them writing it up and publishing it. And really a huge opportunity with digital surgery is that we should be able to identify these uh, outlying behaviors, both on the upside as well as the downside, earlier and sooner, and understand how best to implement them. So with so many companies now coming with robotic systems, do you think is it going to affect the standardization of the surgical procedures? So I think there are initiatives that are trying to standardize. Standardization is obviously a good thing for learning. I think the different instruments uh, and different systems might have different advantages. So a smart thing to do with um, with new robotic systems is, is to say, is this different? And if it is different, is it different better? Because if you think of the history of da Vinci, it was launched uh, to do cardiothoracic surgery, but it was the urologist that saw opportunity in the pelvis. And new systems might be more versatile to be able to create more efficient services. They might be, because they're smaller instruments, be able to do certain procedures better, or because the setup time shorter, they might bring more efficiencies to the procedures. So 
I think we need to strike the balance between not getting too hung up with just driving the same standards. Uh, standardization, I'm a great believer in and it's important, but it's more important as a trainee that you have a good trainer that has a standardized approach. And the trainers that you train with will not be the same across the country. So standardization can also be an isolation in that hospital, but we, we need to have something that is referenceable to go back to and say, this was wrong because you didn't do what we agreed you were going to do. And then, then you can get sort of standardization. But if we only have one way to do something and it's done with one system and then everybody tries to just replicate that approach that is with that system, it won't necessarily result in the best optimized outcomes that we can get with a new system, which might have uh, different advantages. So Justin, just to finish off, where do you see the focus of AI and big data in robotic surgery, let's say in the next five years or the immediate future? We actually published something on this in the American uh, College of Surgical Journal in June uh, 2022. And, and we did this with surgeons, but also engineers and also regulatory agencies, uh, lawyers and educators. And, and the reason we did it with those different groups is different people have different insights. They have different priorities. There's also limitations. And, and what we want to do as surgeons may not always be something that is either ethical or, or possible with current AI. So with that in mind, uh, we said the next things that will happen within AI in the, in the next two years, we predicted that time would be that AI could recognize anatomy and images, and it could provide performance feedback to surgeons. Within five years, uh, we thought it could identify parts of operation for feedback. Looking a little bit further afield in 10 years, we thought it would be possible to enable intraoperative navigability, so to, to guide the surgeons through the, the phases and the steps of the procedure, to detect intraoperative errors. That's obviously something that can be done now with humans. So that's a good example of the differentiators between what AI can do in an automated way and what we can do now. Also within 10 years to guide recovery from an intraoperative error and to grade the difficulty of a surgical procedure. So I think that's uh, that's not a bad time template of, of what uh, could we could see uh, evolve and develop over the next two, five and 10 years. As instruments continue to collect new information from both real-life and simulated operations, our understanding of surgical best practice will evolve and improve. However, institutions and educators will only be able to come to the right conclusions if the data being collected is handled properly, compartmentalised appropriately and analysed with the same scrutiny afforded to any other medical development. And if these considerations are all taken into account, Justin's vision for big data and robotic-assisted surgery could indeed become a reality. That's it for this episode of Surgical RoboTalks. A huge thanks to Justin Collins for joining us today. If you enjoyed our discussion, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you listen to our show. And join us next time when we'll be finding out about the role robotics is playing in colorectal surgery with the help of consultant colorectal surgeon and president-elect of the Association of Coloproctology of Great Britain and Ireland, Jared Talkington.